Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. I'm really glad you could join me as I got the chance to speak with Scott Gilmore, who founded I Have a Dream New Zealand. And in this interview, we learn all about the impact that program's having on the lives of children who come from low-income communities and are supported to reach their goals through people who commit to up to 15 years of involvement with these children. It's a really amazing program, and I learned a lot from the conversation. Here's some excerpts to give a flavor of what we talked about. The point is you can have a list of criteria you think you need, but the real thing we need in our navigators, which is, to your point, is what we need in our mentors and our sports coaches and teachers and everything, is love. It's mm. aroha. Mm. And what do they have in their heart that means they all commit to helping these group of kids and giving them the opportunities that they've seen they've had in their own lives? Mm. And, and so that's the bottom line. Steve, it's been so fascinating for me as a personal journey here because mm. I've really had to learn a lot mm. and, and cast aside a lot of my old assumptions. Mm. And, for example, um, you know, I'm sure you've all heard the phrase that, oh, God, you know, these immigrant families, you know, ESL, English Second Language, they need to learn English, right? Mm. And Ant pointed out to me one day, hang on, Scott, you know, these kids are all bilingual. Mm. So, yeah, they might have a deficit in terms of ESL, but they've got a strength in terms of being bilingual. Yeah. I'm not bilingual. Yeah. You know, so they're kind of, you've got to reframe the way you look at it. And so empathy is key, understanding cultural issues is key, and being prepared to say, Ah, my set of assumptions, my, my personal experience mm. is not the right, right way to frame this issue. Mm. Well, I know you're going to enjoy this conversation, so we're going to get into it. If you do, you might want to check out some of the more than 160 other interviews in the back catalogue, because I've been speaking with people from across New Zealand who are doing really amazing and inspiring things with their lives. And I think we can always learn from others' journeys. You might also want to check out the website at theseeds.nz, where there's lots of videos and other material. If you want to learn more about I Have a Dream, then there's some links in the show notes. Now let's get into this conversation with Scott. All right, so it's a pleasure to welcome Scott Gilmore, who's the founder of I Have a Dream New Zealand. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Stephen. Pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you here. I'm actually really excited to hear about I Have a Dream because you told me in a meeting at the end of last year a little bit about it, but I don't know a huge amount. So this is going to be our chance to... um, learn more. Fantastic. But what I do um, with these interviews is I try to go back and trace a person's journey right back from the beginning of their lives and sort of what led them to do what they do today, because I think it helps paint a bigger context or a picture. So in your case, if you could just tell us a bit about where you're from. (laughs) I normally get this out early when I'm having conversations uh, in Auckland, because I'm from Invercargill. Right. It does a good job of lowering expectations. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing against my Invercargill roots or friends down there. But no, I grew up down south and uh, then went to Otago University, picking the shortest and easiest course there was, which was a BCom. Yeah. And uh, luckily, um, actually, my dad said uh, computers. It's kind of oh. like that movie, you know, Dustin Hoffman was told plastics. Uh-huh. Uh, dad said computers. And this is in, uh, gosh, 1979. And I went to uh, Christchurch. Wow, so it's relatively new and. In the 70s, right? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. So (laughs) I went to Christchurch and got a job with Burroughs, so just down on Beely Ave here, and uh, great introduction to business. Yeah. You know, learning theory is one thing, but doing it is another. Yeah. What do you think caused your father to say that? Had he always sort of had an idea that tech was the way of the future? No, Dad was actually quite a visionary. He worked at the newspaper in Invercargill, the Southern Times. Okay. And he was the first newspaper, I think in Australasia, certainly in New Zealand, to computerize the whole process of going, capturing reporters' keystrokes mm-hmm. onto the printing press. Wow. And so he was traveling the world and buying computer presses and, and replacing the typesetters. Um, but one of the good things about uh, how Dad approached that was he didn't want to cause any redundancies. So everybody at the, at the paper got a chance to retrain for the new jobs that were created. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because we often, you know, it's often a headline is the future mm. and, and technology changes. But actually, it's been something that has always been there, isn't it? Oh. You know, think back to the 70s and 80s and your father 
you know, digitizing printing. Yep. Like it's the exact same issues. And and people are you know, quite rightly, I think there's a level of concern about AI and machine learning and robotics. Mm. What's that going to do to the world of work? Mm. But yeah, the last 50 years have told us that no, every new technology tends to create more work, more jobs. We print out more paper, unfortunately. Um, so no, I'm, I'm always excited by what technology can bring rather than scared about it. Yeah. And so just paint a picture of yourself you know, going back as a teenager sort of age, was technology something that you enjoyed at that time? Or was this, yeah, something that was really new for you? No, this was brand new. We, I mean, I think uh, I got a cassette recorder when I was a teenager. <laughs> yeah. That was pretty exciting, new technology. Yep. So no, I was only uh, selling computers that I got introduced to this world. And even then, I was not a technologist. I don't understand how they work, frankly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the sales and marketing has been fantastic. I ended up um, in Christchurch, was tramping up the Waimakariri River and met this young American girl and so ended up following her back to the States and end up there working for Intel. And mm. uh, what a great introduction to the world of technology. Wow. And so big what, business too. So what year did you move to the States? So gosh. Just to put it in the context of technology change because yeah, there's so a, much. 81. 81, uh, right. And then I joined Intel actually in 89. So I uh, did a bit of sales up there, did an MBA, um, and then got this fantastic job at Intel, just as the 386 chips and 486 and Pentiums were coming out. And uh, boy, that next decade was a fantastic time to be in the industry. Right. So mm. you were there right through the 90s? Yeah. The, yep. the... And actually, late 90s, came home with Intel. Mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to persuade them that uh, we needed a sales office in New Zealand mm-hmm. and that I spoke the language, so they should send me home. Right. And somehow they bought off on that yeah. proposition. <laughs> and luckily, the uh, the wife and the kids were all keen to come. So uh, yeah, we moved home in 97. Yeah. So even though you'd been in the States for quite a long time, mm-hmm. New Zealand was always home? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We always have a yearning to be home, I think. Yeah. Um, and, and the kids have grown up. They were all born in the States, but have grown up with a few trips here and, and with stories of tramping in New Zealand and so on. Mm-hmm. So they were quite keen to come, and they're now all firmly Kiwis, which yeah. is quite exciting. Did you find your identity shaped differently, having spent so much time in the States? Did Being that far away, do you think it affected your identity as a New Zealander, as a Kiwi? Oh, I think... All of us as Kiwis living overseas become probably more passionate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see it actually here, like the expats that come and live here are probably more passionate Kiwis than many of us. Mm. So, um, yeah, I think travel, look, invariably broadens the mind. I think any new experience can be incredibly powerful for us, can mm. be quite tough sometimes. So a lot of it comes down to your, your personal resilience and attitude to change. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been lucky that uh, yeah, I've just always embraced change, I guess, and, and been excited by it. Mm. And you mentioned doing an MBA. Where was that? That was in Oregon. Uh, oh, right. I was working actually for NCR at the time mm-hmm. and uh, loved computer sales, uh, loved my life in Oregon. It's very much outdoorsy, kind of like the South Island of yeah. New Zealand. And they kept offering me promotion opportunities, but it meant moving. I and, see. you know, one was to Kansas City, and I thought, oh, Kansas City is just wheat fields and cornfields <laughs> and no ocean, no mountains. So, oh, no thanks. Yep. And I thought, hang on, if I'm not going to move, uh, I better get some more education. So I did an executive MBA program. Right. And, and after my BCom, we are just basically leaving home and growing up. In my late 20s, early 30s, I was ready to learn, and that just ignited me. Wow. Yeah. So where were you in Oregon? In, uh, this in Portland, I reckon, the main okay. city. Yeah, 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 right. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, my own family history is that we spent a bit of time in Eugene, Oregon. That's right. I remember that. So, yes. um, yeah, it's yeah, a great it's spot, little, isn't it? Yeah, it's a beautiful yeah. little crossover. And you're right, it is in some ways very similar to parts of New Zealand oh. in terms of the mindset and the outlook of the people, but yep. also the, you know, there's a lot of big trees, big trees, <laughs> a lot of big mountains, yeah. big coastline. They have yeah. great Pinot Noir, great coffee, yeah. a lot of microbreweries, you know, so everything you need in life, really. Yeah. Oh, mm. that's great. Um, so doing that MBA, did you have an ambition of what you wanted to do with it or where you wanted to go? Or it was just a chance to learn more? No, it was a chance to learn more. I mean, I think I've always enjoyed learning, mm. um, challenging my mind and, and opening my mind. And this was a, the program had a great reputation mm-hmm. and boy, it just lived up to it. I, and, and I think at a, at a certain age, you're ready for education too. Mm. And uh, yeah, I just th- thrived on it, loved everything I, we did. And, mm. and my employer at the time got a lot out of it because all your homework projects had to be on your, your employment situation. Yeah. 
And then I ended up uh, in the second year writing a business plan that um, became the, the basis for a company that I formed with my work-study partner, oh. um, which is what led eventually to having the means to do this I Have a Dream program. Yeah. So everything ties together in a way. It does, isn't it? And that's mm. what I love about hearing people's life journeys because you see the echoes there. Mm. And so it sounds like entrepreneurship was quite a big part of your makeup even back then. Absolutely. In fact, it was funny doing this uh, MBA, you know, there was 30 of us in the class mm. and would have classes alternating Fridays and Saturdays. So it was only one full day off work every two weeks. Okay. Although all the homework meant, you know, quite a lot of demands. Mm. But after every day of class, we'd go down to the pub and the debates would carry on into the night. And of the 30 people, we, we all wanted to start up companies. And, and that was a big part of the discussion. And, you know, taking the learnings from each day's classes and, okay, how can we apply this to our current employment mm-hmm. and perhaps future employment? Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. that's good. So NCR, that's a really big company yep. itself, isn't yep. it? Yep. Um, what was it like, that transition from NCR over to Intel? Oh, fantastic. I mean, NCR, good company, does a lot of good things um, in, new, in a new guise now. And uh, it's an old company. So, yeah, I think if, as we've seen increasingly in the world of business, older companies get a bit entrenched in the way sometimes, mm. whereas Intel, um, boy, what a brilliant culture that company has. The, you know, Andrew Grove, the founder, um, written some great books, one of them being Only the Paranoid Survive, mm. and, and that really captures the culture of the company. We're always looking out as to who's coming up behind us, you know, what are the threats to the business, how do we keep innovating mm. and, and moving ahead. Mm. Are you still involved with them? or Not with they, Intel, but... Um, since it's just interesting, the pronouns you use there, we and yes. us. Like <laughs> it's, I get the sense of you get fully immersed and involved in a place like that. Oh, look, I think most people will be aware that American companies demand a lot. Uh, American technology companies demand even more. Um, and so if you don't buy into that, it's pretty hard to succeed at it. But if you do buy in and you work hard, tremendous opportunities open up. So, yes, you do feel a, a strong affinity for it. Yeah. And ever since then, um, you know, I did the startup and then um, and still involved in startups here in New Zealand. Mm. And that whole environment of startups, of technology, uh, it's it's so exciting, challenging, risky, scary, mm. uh, and it can be rewarding. Mm. So. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So Intel itself, um, since you're so immersed in it, can you give us a a thumbnail sketch of like when it started and what exactly it was doing? Because in my mind, and I wish I knew more, but, you know, Intel chips and and things like it's sort of components, isn't it? Yes. Um, Rather than the, I guess, the more consumer facing products themselves. But if you could outline it, that would be really helpful. So uh, Andy Grove is one of the founders, Gordon Moore and Bob Noyce, the three of them. They came out of uh, Fairchild Semiconductor in California, okay. and they were making components. Um, right. And initially, Intel was mostly around memory trips. Mm. But and let's see, I've got to get my dates right here. Well before I joined, through the 70s, they were quite big, quite well-growing. And then um, mid-70s, they actually really fell apart. The Japanese manufacturers of memory chips started eating their lunch, mm-hmm. and they were going out of business. And so it, the, the story, I don't know if it's apocryphal or not, but the three founders... We're in a meeting room saying, yeah, guys, the business is toast. And they said, right, we're walking out of the meeting room. They closed the door. <laughs> they came back into the meeting room and said, right, we're the new owners. What are we going to do? Uh-huh. And that's when they bet the company on making the microprocessors. So the 8088 was the first one that came out. And that just led to a regenesis of Intel and what it is now, basically. Right. And when had you joined in that stages? Oh, that was it well around into, then? Well, well down that path of yeah. microprocessors. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. It's amazing, you know, to think of technology change and to look back and realize where you should have placed your bets or not placed your bets, right? <laughs> Hindsight would be great as an investor, <laughs> yeah, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. perfect. <laughs> 2020. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so um, what was your role then within Intel? Were you doing lots of travel or what, what, yeah, what did it Yeah, quite involve? a lot of travel. Um, so marketing and management roles, sales mm-hmm. management, product mm-hmm. management. Um, I ended up managing a team of 10 sales reps around the country looking after the big systems integrators. And um, yeah, it's, you know, just the, the, the great thing about Intel, it had a very positive culture, a very powerful culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you basically um, were invited to challenge any decision. And, and go as high as you needed to if you felt you had a, a good argument. 
But eventually, you know, if a consensus was made, no, we're going down another path, not your path, you have to disagree and commit. So it was a very strong um, confrontation. In fact, they teach a whole class on confrontational management. Mm. Uh, no, sorry, constructive confrontation. And and so you're encouraged to do that. And, and it means that every decision that's made is actually a fairly well-tested t- decision. Mm. It's not just some powerful being on high says, we're going to go this. You know, everybody says, no, no, that's not, that's stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go this. So it's, uh, yeah, tough environment, but once you get into it, very comfortable and rewarding and and encouraging. Yeah. And so it sounds like the culture would be if you did challenge it and people said, actually, that's really good, they would be willing to tweak and pivot and move that direction. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's interesting. What else, you know, reflecting having been there quite a long time at a big organization like that, what other lessons sort of stand out to you um, with the benefit of not having been there for a while? Oh, the, there's so many lessons that you actually, they become like a second skin, you Mm. know, the the Intel way. And it's funny, you pointed out that I still almost speak as though I'm part of it. Yeah. the way they run the business, uh-huh. I picked up over the 12 years I was there a lot of these practices, yep. and I try and bring them into some of the companies I'm working with here in New Zealand. Oh. Well, so, I'd love to hear some of the practices if, well, if you're a, a, able to share them. <laughs> absolutely. A, a big one is is employee ownership. Mm. So you know, every staff member at Intel got awarded stock options, and, and that's still not common in New Zealand. Mm. Sometimes they're given to management sometimes to senior people, but right. never all the way down to the person on the production line or the person answering the phone or the person out making the service calls. But think about it. You want every person representing your company to think like an owner mm. and giving them stock options and not just stock options, but having quarterly meetings saying this is the state of the company, this is some of the directions we're going and these are some of the risks we face. Mm-hmm. You know, this is our prior performance, this is our current performance, here's our, our business plans. You're part of the team, mm. and you're given this incredible responsibility and opportunity, and you're treating all the staff like grown-ups, <laughs> and and oh, it's it's so powerful. Yeah. Now you know when you do that, there is an expectation that you will perform as well. So there's a very strong measurement culture. Mm-hmm. So every year, um, there's a thing called ranking and rating. I mean, there's every element of this culture I can go and speak for hours on. But those things um, rigorously applied without fear or favor Mm. mean that it's a very well-run company that's constantly refining itself, constantly looking for new opportunities and new threats. Mm. And it sounds like that's the true incentive for people rather than it being how much is my salary. You know, if you've got a sales agent who's going out and they are wholly invested in making the sale because the business will perform better, and they are a shareholder, then it's a different attitude, isn't it? You also want, though, especially the sales people, to make good decisions because some customers you shouldn't sell to. Right. You know, if your product is, in fact, not right for them, mm-hmm. say, look, I'm sorry, you'd be better off going with this competitor. Yeah. And customers actually struggle to understand that, right? You're a salesman, your job is to sell me. Yeah. But you're trying to make a good sale and a happy customer because a happy customer becomes a repeat customer. Mm-hmm. So, no, thinking like an owner changes i think the way you approach your job yeah and that's that, true for everybody that makes sense so you've been there um 12 years total you said um was there a point when you looked at your wife and said it's time to go back or how did that play out actually i was extremely lucky in that uh intel shifted me home after eight years oh okay so i had eight years up in oregon uh-huh. working in the big what we call the factory um, and then four years coming home to, to run the sales office in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. So two very dis- different aspects of the job. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, I had a new job at Intel almost every year. And, right. and again, that's part of the beast, you know, constant reorganizations. Right. Um, that can sound chaotic sometimes, but it's not. It was always responding to business threats or business opportunities. Right. Mm. It sounds like they were very, the word I'm thinking of is sort of nimble, you know, like able to identify something's coming up we got to tweak it here we got to change it there yeah absolutely yeah. and it you know you still see this uh in the silicon valley mindset the mm. the vcs the entrepreneurs um everybody understands um i don't like the phrase you know what is it work fast and break things right. um but there's an element of that yes yeah. nimbleness is probably a, a nicer way to describe it yeah, yeah yeah so when you got back to new zealand did you suffer any sort of reverse culture shock of returning home and what was it like for your kids and and your wife uh look it was hard harder for the wife um kids 
I think kids are always pretty more adaptable than, than adults are typically. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love being home. I did notice that after 15, I was away for 15 years, mm-hmm. and through most of the 80s and 90s, New Zealand had undergone huge changes in that time. Right. And I'd missed a lot of these changes, right? I see, yeah. And so that so was So what sort of things were you observing? Oh, look, I missed, um, you know, the whole Ruth Richardson, mother of all budgets, and then the the Roger Douglas changes. Mm-hmm. I mean, New Zealand had some huge changes then. Yeah. And, and when I left New Zealand, really, especially growing up in the South Island in the 60s and 70s, it was a pretty benign environment. Mm-hmm. You know, university was free. Uh, we had great health care. We, we even had an army and air force and a navy back in the day. So, mm-hmm. and come back now, and it, it, there's a lot more, you know, division in society, and, and you could mm-hmm. see some of the current trends starting to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, that was, it was interesting to be able to observe those from afar, I guess, mm. or, or having a different set of eyes to see them. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's as I say, everything in, in life, you know, you can, you can look at it as well. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and, that is interesting. Yeah. I, was, uh, I um, have an accent, but I actually grew up in New Zealand, so this is my home. Yeah. Went to Canterbury University, worked in Wellington, and then my wife and I left for 11 years, mm. so not quite 15. Yeah. But when I got back, there was a little bit of this sort of reverse culture shock and in the sense of, you know, this person is talking on TV and they seem to be famous, but I have no idea who yeah, they are. Yeah, yeah. And, oh, that's a that's this person who did blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And, you know, because you are, you're right, you're on top of the big changes, mm. but you're not really up with the, the, the culture mm. that's shifting, you know, which naturally happens because you're in another place. Indeed, um, yeah. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. And your kids, were they young enough to feel like New Zealand is home? or Yeah, is, they, they, they were got 12 down to 4. Okay. When we moved home, they're now 34 down to 26 or yep. whatever the maths is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, no, they've all grown up and, and gone through their education and got mm-hmm. jobs and partnered up. And, yeah. yeah, it's just a joy to see that. Yeah, and yeah. actually we're, we're talking just after the coast to coast, right? Yeah, and yeah. so you said one of your children had, had done that. My daughter and her partner had finished yeah. the coast to coast, which is an epic adventure and uh, awesome job by them. Yeah. Quite daunting, really, what they went through, but uh, yeah. great to see them and support them on that. So fully ingrained in New Zealand culture. Absolutely. Of the coast to coast. We're all keen trampers. So. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. That's awesome. So when you got back, um, I'm really curious because I know you've been involved in sort of angel investing mm-hmm. scene within New Zealand. Um, yeah. I don't want to ask too leading a question, but what was it like in that area when you first got back and, and what changes have you seen since then? Oh, boy, that's, uh, again, another long topic of conversation. But the, the snapshot is that uh, came home in 97 and in 2002 or three, I think it was, I was involved with the forming of the Ice Angels in Auckland, which is the first angel investor network. And... Um, over the last 20 odd years, you know, huge growth in that sector, um, increasing numbers of, of investors uh, with the desire and the capability to invest, mm-hmm. increasing numbers of entrepreneurs who are actually, I mean, I don't know what it is in New Zealand, but we have some wonderful innovators. Uh, come, mm-hmm. People come up with some great products, great technologies. Yeah, We still struggle to commercialize some of those things, mm-hmm. um, but generally there's no shortage of ideas, mm-hmm. uh, investable propositions, and uh, the job of the Angel Investor Group, of course, is to figure out which will become a good company mm-hmm. and which is just a, 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 wow, gee whiz kind of thing, but, yeah, but yeah. is never commercially viable. Right. Yeah, interesting. And was there any networks at that point in New Zealand? Because I know we'd, we'd spoken, I think the last time we met, you'd been at a conference down here in Canterbury, yeah. sort of gathering angel investors together. Um, was that any networks like that? or, or? No, so the, the Science Angels Group in Auckland was the first. Yeah. Now there's, uh, gosh, I don't know, the number 15 to 20 yeah. angel networks around the country. So the, the thing I was in in Christchurch last year was the Angel Association of New Zealand Annual Conference. Right. So all these groups have come together. There's a just a wonderful bunch of people. And it's interesting, these angel investors are very much like social investors, mm. uh, social entrepreneurs, and that they, they have a desire to give back. Um, you know, they've had some success maybe doing their own company or like me working for a big company overseas. Mm-hmm. And they're back in New Zealand and saying, we need to start these companies up. We need to help them grow mm-hmm. because it's only by that, that we get high wage jobs, good exports, mm-hmm. um, you know, powerful economic value add mm-hmm. and often good things too. So whether it's software, hardware, increasingly you're seeing a lot of New Zealand in the ag tech 
uh, and biotech kind of realm. Yeah. Um, these are net good things for us as individuals, as mm. cities, as a country. Mm. So you would, you would see the motivation of most of the people, for example, who are at the conference, that, that that was the hat they were wearing or they actually do want to... Look, I've been on both sides of the table. Mm-hmm. So I've done a startup in the States and we spoke to angel investors <laughs> and we brought on VCs. Yep. And, oh, yeah, it can be scary mm. from the founder's point of view. Yeah. Am I going to lose control? Are these sure. going to steal my company? You know, But frankly, no company can start up typically or grow without external capital. Yeah. So you do need. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm on the other side of the table as an investor, I've yeah. got a lot of respect for founders. But they have to have respect for the capital as well. Yeah. And and bottom line, I'm whenever I mentor entrepreneurs, I'm saying, look, the investors are going to do due diligence on you. Mm. You do the same on them. Mm-hmm. And it's more about values. Mm. Do we have an alignment of values? You know, why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. If we're successful, how will you treat your staff, your shareholders, your spouse? <laughs> and conversely, when it gets really dire, mm. when we're about to go under and we've got a dip into our pockets to meet payroll, mm. who's going to be there with you? Mm. And and this comes down to personal judgments, personal morals, personal values. And so that's, at the end of the day, it's like in a rugby team, you know, you want to know who's playing beside you and will they go to bat mm. with you? Mm. Uh, well, I'm mixing up my metaphors there. So yeah. <laughs> It's okay. It's all sport. It can yeah. all be, we can <laughs> exactly. aggregate it all and running, on the, running in the coast to coast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I understand. And I think the key there is that the, the fit has to be right because you might have someone with plenty of money who wants to invest in you but isn't going to provide anything else. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. some founders would be like, that's all I want, really. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but if you did get an activated investor who actually has market knowledge and understanding, you know, like your experience, for example, then the value that they can bring is so much more than just the the dollars because they may have networks, they may have connections, they may have ideas about how you go about, you know, going offshore because usually New Zealand companies eventually need to expand and and get to scale. So you've clearly done this before. <laughs> and that look, we we look for smart money. Yeah. Not just money. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And can I just throw a word out because I'm really interested in this, which is impact investing. Mm. Um, what are you seeing in terms of trends in that area? Um, and what are your thoughts about that? Or is it something you've always thought of anyway? Look, I think any investing, certainly in the, the way that I've been doing it and most of our fellow angels are doing it, yep. has impact. Mm. Uh, and that's good impact, not like a meteor slamming into earth. Mm. But um, I think the biggest impact is creating jobs, mm. creating wealth, because it's only by having wealth in society and, and us all paying taxes, and that's another matter, we should have capital gains taxes. But um, you know, this is how we can have a good education system and a good health system mm. and so on. So that's the first and immediate impact. Mm. I think your question is more around beyond that, and you're seeing increasing number of funds and companies saying, no, we want to make a social impact or an environmental impact or a governance impact, and that's all of the good. Uh, But at the end of the day, a business has to be financially sustainable. Mm. But I think we should always be looking at more than just shareholders. We should look at all our stakeholders. Mm, mm. Absolutely. Well, that's the terminology I'm seeing more and more. And yeah. if you look at Larry Fink and BlackRock, some of his latest statements, you know, and, and I think the latest figure I saw was a management of $6.8 trillion. Yeah. You know, so it's, yeah. it's not just a couple million. Um, but one of the things he's talked about is um, stakeholders as well as shareholders. And, you know, you have to have a bigger conception than maybe traditionally we've had, which is shareholder returns. We've got a better example than Larry Fink right here in New Zealand, and that is Sam Stubbs at Simplicity. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've looked at his business yeah. at all, yep. but, you know, yeah, great know. business. Mm-hmm. And um, that's the kind of thing I think we want to see more of. Yeah. That he's you saying. know, Sam was due to be on this podcast, yeah. and then something came up and right. he couldn't make it. But at some point, I'm sure he will be. <laughs> Look, he's a great guy doing some good things as a company. Yeah. Um, and I'm not just saying that because Simplicity has also decided to donate to I Have a Dream. Mm. <laughs> so we're very appreciative of that. Well, there's a good alignment there. Yeah, 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 absolutely. That's great. Well, that leads nicely then to I Have a Dream. I would love to talk about it. And as I said at the start, just find out a bit more about what's going on, who's involved. and um, But could you just set the scene by explaining sort of where this idea came from? Because I know... Um, before we started recording, you were saying it has been done in the States as well. Yes. And, and 
I have no credit to claim for I Have a Dream mm. in that I was living in Oregon and just reading the paper one day before going off to work at Intel and there was a big half-page story about I Have a Dream. It had come out of East Harlem, New York City, started in 1981 and this is now 91, 10 years later, came into a suburb in Portland and this article, you know, sometimes, sometimes things just resonate for you Yeah. and I went, wow, that sounds neat. So I cut out the article before I ran off to work and... Basically, it was 10 years later, 2002, 11 years, um, I'm now home, and the software company I'd founded with my friend, mm-hmm. we sold it. And I thought, shoot, I could do that now. <laughs> so I called up New York and said, would you support us in New Zealand? Wow. And they said, yes, they were very keen to do it. So I'm keen to explore this, because that's 1991. I've read about it. Yeah, you read it. And then a decade later is yep. when you actually... So had it just been sitting in the back of your mind? Like, no, I'd, like I said, I got up. Early on from Invercargill, things just take a while to gestate and sort of grow. <laughs> I'm a slow learner. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was purely uh, the idea was there. Yeah. And now the I guess search, it's just that you remembered it so clearly oh, 10 years ago. It later had a big go, impact. Right. Uh, and, and quite a few friends at Intel had got involved with that local okay. thing. So I knew about it. Yeah, sure. Slightly closer than the article. Yeah. And yeah, for some reason it just resonated, and, and it's interesting. I had a kind of parallel story, if I can share this with yeah, you. Of um, now we go forward another ten years, really, two thousand twelve. Mm-hmm. Actually, now it was fourteen. Um, Ant Ant is the guy that ran the program for me and did a marvelous job for that. Ant Backhouse, and when the kids had graduated, this dreamer group we started with Mount Roscoe at the age of eight, they're now twenty, going to university, many of them, and we took a bunch of them down to do the Tongariro Crossing. Because we'd done it when they were in high school, we thought, let's go and do that again. And as we're driving down to the mountain, I had four of the, the boys in my car, and Robel Hailu, who's an Ethiopian immigrant, is just grilling me about starting up a software company. Because mm. he was doing engineering, really wants to start a company because he wants to do an I Have a Dream program. Mm. <laughs> and he's saying, How do you have an idea, Scott? How do you start a company? How do you raise your money? So for four hours, we're driving down, and, and he's just grilling me, and I'm, oh, this is really, you know, I'm. I'm I was flattered that he was interested. And as we told the story, I said, and finally, you know, after 12 years, we became an overnight success, sold the company. And I said, and frankly, Robel, that's how I got the resources to now do this, that, which is how I met you. And, and he looked at me and he's a reflective young man. He said, wow, Scott, you must be really satisfied with your accomplishments. And I thought about that. And I said, well, actually, no, Robel, I'm not satisfied with what I've done. I'm appreciative of what I've had. And so I said, look, you know, my mum and dad, mainstream culture, both been university, professional jobs. I'm growing up in Invercargo in the 60s and 70s. New Zealand was a pretty benign environment at that point. Um, university was free. You know, I had books. I had everything. If I couldn't make a success out of that, shame on me. Whereas look at you, Robel. You were six years old when you came to New Zealand, couldn't speak a word of English, just mum and your older sister. Mm. And two years later, we pick you up in the I Have a Dream program you know, you had a very different beginning in life than I did. And his mum, Asefu, is awesome, really powerful woman, as, you know, most mums are. And I said, here you are going to university. Mm. I said, I'm freaking proud of you, mate. Mm. And he said, oh, that's what my mum says. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's really good. So tell me more about what exactly is happening. Look, it's um, in the tech world, you're meant to always have a – Elevator pitch, right? Mm-hmm. What does your company do? And you should be able to say that in, in 30 seconds as the lift goes up three or four floors. Yeah. And with I Have a Dream, I still struggle to give an elevator pitch mm. because what we do is take a bunch of kids, whether it's a whole class or now we're around Whangarei, it's four schools, and we work with these kids right from when they come into primary school until after they come out of high school. Mm. So it's 15 years and we work with that group of kids consistently with a, with a caring adult as assigned to them who follows their entire educational journey for these mm. 15 years. And we do whatever it takes to keep them in school on track to some form of life success, whatever life success is for that child. Now, it might be finishing high school with literacy, numeracy, the soft social skills, and becoming a guitar player if that's their passion and their skill, and if they can get employment out of that. It might be going to university, becoming an astrophysicist. Whatever it is, we want them to be happy, productive citizens that have good relationships with their whanau, you know, with with being productive members of society. Mm. And this is why I picked up the Ivor Dream program from America, because it's been running for 40 years. 
There's been over 200 projects in the States, affected over 18,000 children, so it's like a franchise model. If you do these things over this period of time, these kids will have a much better outcome than they may be otherwise have had because mm. it's targeted at you know more impoverished areas mm. or, or populations that are struggling mm. uh, because every child when they're born has potential, mm. right? It's our job as parents, as sports coaches, as teachers, as mentors, as neighbours to make sure that child can realise and actualise their potential. Mm. And, and when they do, like I said with Robel, being an engineer, um, boy, what a, what a treat to see that. It's yeah. just like having your own kids do that. Yeah, but it sounds like it's um, recognizing that this is a long-term project in the sense of you're not just coming in for a two-hour seminar for the kids. You know, what you're describing, and I think it's wonderful, so I'm highlighting it, is this is a 15-year journey that we're going on with these people to really help them achieve all that they're capable of. So if I can just tell the story, back in 2002, after I'd sold the software company in the States, I thought, okay, I've got the resources. Yeah, New York wants to support us. Yeah. Then I thought, hang on, New Zealand already has 25,000 charities. You don't need another one. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the, the American program isn't always welcomed. Mm-hmm. So I spent six months going and speaking to a lot of the nonprofits, schools, universities, police, and so on, yeah. saying, look, is there a program like this that I can just support? Because right. for some reason, it was just something I wanted to get involved in. And after six months, I decided it's nothing like I have a dream. It's different on two major vectors. One, as you've highlighted there, Steve, is mm-hmm. the, the time frame. Mm-hmm. No one does 15 years. Yeah. Ma- you know, one or two years at most. Yeah. The other one is that's inclusive. And if you think of any group of kids in any school, you know, take the year three class at a DSL 10 school or a DSL 1 school, there'll be a bell curve of talent there. One or two kids might be great at rugby. One or two will be really poor. 80% in the middle, just average whether it's musical ability, sport ability, intelligence, mm-hmm. EQ, you know, there's a spread amongst any population. Mm. And most popula- most programs in this world either take the really, really troubled kids right. or the really, really talented kids. I see. And the 80% in the middle, they're neither bad enough nor good enough to get any extra attention. Mm. Now, if you've come from a multi-generational poverty environment or if you're in a really impoverished you know, community, mm. it's actually really hard to break out of that. But this 15 years of loving, caring, consistent support for the child and for the family mm. means that they can overcome the, whatever challenges are in their lives and have a much better outcome. Mm. So we basically do stop the cycle of poverty forever in mm. that family, in that community. Yeah, that's amazing. And it sounds like there's real commitment by the mentors or the oh. people involved if, if they're saying, right, I'm meeting you as an eight-year-old, and I'm going to be continuing to meet you, you know, when you're 19, 20, whatever it is. Ant, Ant Backhouse, the guy that I was lucky enough to find and hire when we started in 2003 in Mount Roskill, yeah. um, <laughs> all the kids end up calling him their, their Palangi daddy, you mm. know, which is white daddy in Pacifica. Right. And, and that's no disrespect to their own parents, but they just realized that Ant was there. Mm. He had their back. He loved them unconditionally. He supported them unconditionally. Mm. And, you know, occasionally kids need a little bit of a, um, you know, kick up the rear end to, mm. <laughs> to get going. And he was there. He was that consistent presence in their life. And, and they knew it and they appreciated it. The mm. only downside, they call me the Palangi granddaddy. Right. So, <laughs> not quite as respectful. <laughs> oh, that's cool. So when you first met him, did you know immediately that this person would be well suited to this Role? Absolutely. Yeah. Because, what what uh, were the attributes that immediately stood out? He had already demonstrated the care right. and the commitment. So um, one of the police, well, actually the first person I spoke to in 2002 was Nick Tuatazi, who was a senior constable out in Mount Roscoe Police Station. Okay. And the reason I picked him up is that in 98, just after I came home, he was awarded the QSM and the you know, Queen's Birthday Honours because mm-hmm. uh, he had done a lot of work with troubled youth. So I went out and spoke with him at the Mount Roscoe Police Station and he must have believed me because he said, oh, you got a bit more time? And we jumped in his car and drove down to Wesley Primary School mm. and the principal there said, oh, I love the idea, you know, bring it on. I said, yeah, hang on, I'm just starting. Right. <laughs> this is my <laughs> first call. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and But um, they kept on sort of inviting me back and they invited me back to meet the chairman of their board of trustees who was this guy, Ant Backhouse. Huh. And Ant and his wife had been doing some work in the community, purely voluntary basis, saw the needs, had such mana in the community that put him onto the board of trustees, even though he had no kids of his own at the time. Mm. So I, I met this guy and I thought, wow, that's exactly what I need to hire. Mm. And luckily, 
he had worked himself out of full-time employment and needed a job, so it was a very serendipitous meeting. Wow. And so he came to work with us, and the good news is he's now a CEO of the expansion up in Whangarei, and we've now got 12 new people just like Ant, which we call navigators, who, as you said, incredible commitment and love on their part that they said, I want to sign up and support this group of kids mm. all the way through. Mm. So just to really drill down onto this, the navigators, the people that you've chosen there, um, because I'm, I'm keen with this podcast that we all can learn from it, whether the people become navigators or, yeah. or whatever. It sounds like those people have skills which would be helpful for more of our population to have. What, is, what are the key things that make them so good at what they do? It's funny because when we were writing a business plan of how we're going to expand and how we're going to raise money and, and, mm. and so on, uh, we wrote position descriptions for the skill set a navigator needs. Right. And boom, 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 boom. And that included a degree in social work or education or whatever. And I said, and if I was hiring you back you know, 10 years ago, you wouldn't have got the job because you didn't have the degree at the time. Right. <laughs> He's since got one. Yeah. Um, but so that... The point is you can have a list of criteria you think you need, yep. but the real thing we need in our navigators, which is to your point, is what we need in our mentors and our sports coaches and teachers and everything, is love. It's mm. aroha. Mm. And what do they have in their heart that means they all commit to helping these group of kids and giving them the opportunities that they've seen they've had in their own lives? Mm. And, and so that's the bottom line. Mm. Um, and then adaptability, you know, can you learn new things? Can you learn new cultures? Can you... Mm-hmm understand the myriad issues that go on in the social world and work creatively to bring solutions to those. Yeah. Oh, that's good. They're an incredible bunch of people, just amazing. Yeah. No, it sounds like it. And and I think the word empathy to me is a really important one, being able to put yourself and understand what somebody else is going through. It sounds like that's really a key, key element, isn't Look, it? Steve, it's been so fascinating for me as a personal journey here because mm-hmm. I've really had to learn a lot mm. and, and cast aside a lot of my old assumptions. Mm. And, for example, um, you know, I'm sure you've all heard the phrase that, oh, God, you know, these immigrant families, you know, ESL, English Second Language, they need to learn English, right? Mm. And Ant pointed out to me one day, hang on, Scott, you know, these kids are all bilingual. Mm. So, yeah, they might have a deficit in terms of ESL, but they've got a strength in terms of being bilingual. Yeah. I'm not bilingual. Yeah. yeah, so they're kind of, you've got to reframe the way you look at it. And so empathy is key. Understanding cultural issues is key. And being prepared to say, ah, my set of assumptions, my, my personal experience mm. is not the right, right way to frame this issue. Mm. I think it's so important as well because we do tend to put people in boxes because mm. it's easier that way. I interviewed somebody about dyslexia, mm-hmm. and that was fascinating because the traditional box was, well, you know, they're dyslexic and there's issues there. But he was saying actually dyslexia can be a form of superpower because you're forced to think out of the box. And if you look at some of the biggest CEOs, you know, the Richard Bransons, yeah, and yeah. there's a whole list of people who grew up not being able to function in the exact same way that everyone in the class was and therefore are amazing mm. at breaking boundaries and you know going doing new things and so it's really that sort of mentality isn't it that there is benefit in whatever the situation is and you're right being bilingual is a huge you know i think it actually does things in your brain if you can understand two languages Mm. it Mm. opens you up to possibilities in a way that one language probably doesn't absolutely yeah oh that's fascinating so it sounds like you've had a real focus in the far north there um what are your plans for the future and you know like it it sounds like it's something that could be applicable in other parts of new zealand as well look there's a high need out there Mm. you know depending on what statistic you look at there's 10 to 20 percent of our population Mm. has has struggles or as they say is is only one medical bill or one car repair bill away from financial ruin Mm. so yes there's high needs um you know the quick story is that this program in Mount Roskill, we applied the American model to see would it work. Right. Uh, after 10 years, we can say unequivocally it does work because 80% of our dreamers in Auckland from a decile 1A school mm. went on to tertiary study mm. versus 30% of the comparison group. Wow. And we had it tracked by folks from Massey University. So what we showed is these kids had the potential if they had the support. I see. And as these kids go on to graduate and get decent jobs and, and pay taxes – we worked out a 20 to 1 return on investment mm. based on our investment. Mm. So this is powerful economically. Mm. It's also powerful from a quality of human life. Mm. You know, when these kids get a chance to exceed mm. what 
society expects of them, boy, does that feel good. Yeah. And does it contribute to our country? Absolutely. Yeah. So Anne and I were going, yay, big success in 2012 when these kids graduated. And then we thought, ah, oh, no, not really. We'd been on the telly. We'd been in the press. We'd had some nice conversations. We had a few politicians visit. Mm -hmm. But nobody had picked up how do I expand this throughout New Zealand. Mm -hmm. And so Ant and I spent basically three years investigating how could we expand it, why hadn't it been picked up. I had a very compelling meeting in, in Dunedin with Richie Poulton, who runs that Dunedin study. He spoke at a TED Talk. Mm. Um, and one of my daughters said, hey, Dad, TED, you know, TED Talk this weekend. And I, I love them. So we went through and listened. And, and Richie can reel off you know, from Dunedin study how the yeah. nature versus... That's that longitudinal, longitudinal one, study, yeah. Tracking yeah. the thousand children born. Over 45 yeah. years. Wow. So I ran up after and said... Richie, I've done this program, got this research results, can I ask you about it? He said, great, send me the research, come and see me 10 o'clock tomorrow at my office. Great. So I went and saw him and he said, Scott, the research quality is world class, but your p-value is too small. I went, p-value, p-value. <laughs> I learned that in my stats class, my MBA. Uh, mm. That's right, not statistically significant sample size. I see. He said, 50 kids is not a big, he said, treasury will drive a truck through that. Mm -hmm. Right? Oh, damn. Yeah. <laughs> so Ant and I said, basically, okay, if we need a bigger sample size, we need a 1,000 kids, just like the Dunedin study. Yeah. And we spent a year plus looking at various communities. And look, we knew in, in Mount Roscoe this had worked in a primarily Pacifica population. So we need to work in, uh, needs to work in a Tangata Whenua population. Mm -hmm. And by the way, this is not an ethnic program. This is an anti-poverty program. Mm. Just unfortunately, in New Zealand, most of our poverty is, is in those ethnic groups. So we end up going up to Whangarei, identifying these four schools in Tikiponga Otangarei, uh, spent two years engaging with the community, uh, with the local marae, the iwi, the council, the businesses, the schools, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, would you like to investigate this kind of program in your community? And they were all very keen. Mm. So we launched in 2016, and uh, so far... Touchwood, it's going great. We're seeing similar results to what we saw in, in Mount Roskill. Mm. And so we're building up a database that shows, yes, this will work at scale. It's cost effective. We know how to grow it. We know who to recruit. We know what you need to do in the community. We know what programs you need to run with the kids. And we're now engaging with other communities, engaging quite a lot with government departments and politicians, because we would love this to be picked up and rolled out nationally. Mm -hmm. We've got some ideas of how that might work. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, the, 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 the effort, the rewards, the returns are so powerful. Mm -hmm. You know, you think, let's go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that's good. Well, I guess you're open to conversations, aren't you, in terms of how we get it out further? Because I would have thought that, you know, for central government, that this is like a pretty easy win <laughs> Look. In, in the sense, you know, the results, even if they are only 50, it sounds like they're pretty compelling. The, the problem, I mean, there's a number of problems when you start taking a local, mm. very micro local success story and taking that onto the national stage. You know, I think we have to go through a bit more of a, a proof. Uh, I understand that. Mm. But we've got a fundamental problem in New Zealand with a three-year electoral cycle. Mm -hmm. you know, how does the government actually commit to making a 15-year investment? Yeah. So that's a two levels of conversation we have to somehow find a way to bridge. Mm -hmm. So we've got to make it cross-party, obviously. Uh, I'd, this couldn't be just a Labour or a National or a Greens or a New Zealand First kind of initiative. Yeah. Um, and I think the only way we're going to get that is by getting the public demand for it. And so this is why I welcome this opportunity to come and talk to you because um, you know I think a lot of people realise, hey, there's some issues in New Zealand. Oh, wouldn't it be nice if somebody did something? Mm -hmm. And what we're saying is we've got a programme here that we think works Come on board, find out about it, see if it might fit in your community, or get involved in our program. We're up in Whangarei, we always need more mentors and volunteers and tutors and so on, mm -hmm. more donors. Unfortunately, I haven't sold any more software companies lately, so <laughs> we need some help. Uh, and But new communities, this would be a great opportunity to roll out. Mm, yeah. Well, the thing I really love about it, and this often comes up in the podcast, is it's almost a paradigm of thinking. And unfortunately, our culture has gotten more and more short-term focused in terms of the the easy wins, the quick results. and But what you're talking about is this more the deeper, you know, planting the seed that you're not going to see for maybe 15 years. And that requires patience and it requires a bigger vision of what's actually going on, um, which is, yeah, happy to help support something like that because that is what we need. We need to stop moving just to 
the latest Facebook post, you know, <laughs> is, this is the latest thing to do. This yeah. is going to solve our problems. We actually do need, I think that, you know, and it comes back to relationship, doesn't it? It's the actually feeding into people at their most vulnerable points. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and the rewards from that are very powerful for people that get involved. I think there's also an awareness increasingly talking to the other nonprofits and the big philanthropic funders mm-hmm. that, you know, Yes, on the one hand, let a thousand points of light bloom, um, try lots of different innovative things. Mm-hmm. But we've been doing this for 20 years. We've had research reports up the yin-yang about why. So we know what the issues are. Mm-hmm. We just need to agree on how to overcome them. Yeah. And there's some great – and we're not a panacea. I've often said to groups that, look, we do a great job on extracurricular and whānau and child support, but you need other things in the educational journey, um, you know, Bright young teachers in the classroom, so Teach First New Zealand is great. Mm. Powerful principal leadership, so Springboard Trust is great. Um, early reading, early childhood support, so things like Talking Matters. Um, Chloe Wright and the Wright Family Foundation are one of our supporters, but they do some other great things like talking, um, working, uh, helping mothers and so on. Mm-hmm. So all these things, we and we're increasingly doing this, we as in the community here, mm are getting together and saying, how can we have bigger impact to your question before by collaborating rather than doing our own individual thing? Mm. uh, But it's hard. Look, there's no no doubt about it. It's hard. Mm. But there's a lot of conversations going on, so that's exciting. Yeah, that's really good. And I think there are people out there who want to affect positive change. Hmm. It's just a case of activating them with the ideas and here's an alternative, here's another way of doing things. So, Indeed. Yeah, that's great. Well, what we'll do is in the show notes to the episode, we can put links to things. Oh, great. So we'll get some links from you. And anything that we've talked about, I'll drop those in there and put a little description and um, maybe put some contact information as well. And that way, if people are interested to find out more or ways they can support either directly being involved yep. or you know, as a sponsor or doing different things, then um, yeah, we'll give some options there that's fantastic thank you Stephen for this opportunity to talk to you really enjoyed it yeah no no it's no problem and before we started talking you'd said you'd spoken to somebody who said oh we need to go on a podcast or something like that and they actually said seeds right so that's that's really fun for me to hear (laughs) (laughs) no this is great Um, and and to your point I think there's a hunger out there from society to learn about good people doing good things yeah and uh we have a staff of 20 up in Whangarei, not just good people, they're great people, and they're doing great things. Mm. And and spending, I love going up there and spending time with the kids and the teachers and, and the parents mm. and seeing the impact it's having. So, yeah, this is uh, one of the most rewarding things I think you can ever do. Yeah. Uh, so I'd encourage anybody uh, that's listening to, to look into getting involved. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Stephen. Appreciate yours. Great. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Scott. I know for me there were several things that stood out, as well as his insights into I Have a Dream. I really enjoyed hearing about his career and some of the business practices that he had learned from, as well as being an angel investor. If you want to learn more about I Have a Dream, then there's some links in the show notes. If you enjoyed this, then check out some of the earlier episodes as well, because there's more than 160 in the back catalog. Until next time. Mm-hmm.